Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With your top story as you wake up here in New York City and beyond, talks about talks. China will dispatch vice commerce minister to the United States for low-level trade talks in late August, the first official exchanges since earlier negotiations broke down, I think, about two months ago. Joining me to discuss is Dom Constant, Deutsche Bank Securities Managing Director and Global Head of Rates Research. Good morning to you, Dom. Good morning. Low-level talks, talks about talks, apparently. Um, how excited should we be this morning? Uh, well, probably. I mean, probably not that excited. I think there's been a lot of toing and froing in terms of all these sort of talks uh, and uh, the whole kind of trade tension story. But I think fundamentally, the question people should be asking themselves is: Is this about uh, uh, getting concessions in the current trading regime to make trade freer and fairer type thing? And is the issue of China the similar issues say, with Mexico or Canada, etc.? Uh, or is there something more fundamental here about changing the regime, changing the way? in which uh, we think about China as an economic competitor. Uh, perhaps uh, they, they've become uh, too powerful relative to not just the US, but uh, other uh, large economies such as Europe. And perhaps uh, that, wants, that, that needs to be changed from the perspective of either this administration or other countries. And well, I think that's a real issue. Well, right now, Dom, the US economy looks rock solid. We just had Walmart numbers drop across the screen. Um, second quarter adjusted EPS 129, the estimate 122. The best sales in more than a decade from Walmart, and they've boosted their year-adjusted EPS forecast as well. And um, this is looking really good in the United States, whilst the rest of the world is looking a little bit more fragile relative to, say, 12 months ago. Right, but on a sort of couple-of-decade basis, uh, it's pretty amazing that uh, you know uh, that most of our treasury market is owned by uh, um, uh, overseas countries, uh, and uh, it's pretty amazing that you've had a, such a huge reserve, reserve accumulation, particularly out of Asia. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't think it's, there's any right or wrong about this. I just think uh, some of the concern is that the ability uh, for that spending power in the world is something that uh, is making some people think that is that kind of a, the right sort of balance of economic power uh, going forward. And I think the idea about the trade discussions is a way of saying, look, uh, perhaps we want to rebalance this a little bit. And if you can do it in a way that uh, China can continue to grow very strongly, uh, which is very good for them, uh, and the US does uh, very well, then, yeah. then you know, in the end, it could be a better outcome come for everyone on balance. But I think right now, that's where the issue is. I don't think it's really directly about, uh, you know, you're, you're trading your soybeans or your cars, and, and it's just specifically about that. It's, I think it's a bigger picture here. Uh, and that's why I think markets have to be careful that there isn't, uh, you, know, what, you know, what is the nature of the regime shift? The nature of the regime shift is you enter a world where uh, something like the renminbi, for example, uh, uh, does actually depreciate uh, much more substantially. Uh, I've lived through a couple of, uh, at least, um, China depreciations, and they are you know, quite seismic events. Yep. Uh, and uh, that's kind of, I think, the, the question that some people in the markets are asking now is, uh, is does this represent a regime change uh, rather than just a question about uh, sort of making trade a little bit freer and fairer? Well, I can tell you this morning, the mood music in the market a whole lot better. Um, some warmth in the tape and the Chinese currency a little bit stronger. And Tom Keane, looking at Walmart right now, following those numbers, up by 6.5% in the pre-market. Yeah. 
I want to give them great credit. Their release of their earnings is a lot clearer than it was four or five years ago. E-commerce sales grew, the headline, 40%. That's from a relatively low base, but that's where a lot of the pros are going to turn to, John, is to see how they're doing versus Amazon. Well, the stock is flying right now, but elsewhere, Dom, and I want your view on this. We've got a bear market in European banks. We've got a bear market in copper, and seemingly we're on course for a bear market in emerging market equities. I think it raises a big, big question for, for investors and beyond the United States. Just how immune is the U.S. to all of this, what is happening in global markets right now? Just how immune is the United States to this? Well, well it's immune up to a, up to a point. Um, but at the end of the day, the dollar, unfortunately, if it gets uh, way too strong, will tighten financial conditions a lot. Uh, and then the immunity might still be there, but the onus is going to be on the central bank, the Fed, uh, to basically uh, not continue to raise rates, for example, at least take some kind of time out if the dollar gets too strong. At the end of the day, financial conditions overall become very important for the outlook for the U.S. We're still a trading country. The dollar gets too strong. Frame that off DXY or broad trade weighted. I'll let you decide, Dominic Custom. But it's not Plaza Accord too strong. We're not looking at the silliness of the 1980s because there's a lot more fixed. Uh, it's a floating world. How much is too strong too strong? Well, I think uh, a redux of what we saw two years ago, a nice leg up. Um, Well, too too strong would become uh, if you I mean, basically, at the end of the day, you start looking at the inflation components in the uh, uh, US economy. The inflation component has a third of it is in the good sector. I would argue if the uh, if the dollar were to go up, say, 10 or 20 percent on the trade weighted index, you're clearly going to have a lot of disinflation running through that good side. And that's that where it it, it, that would be too strong, if you like, uh, in the context of uh, if you can't get inflation from the other parts of the economy. Not only you, but your entire team led by Fulker Landau. How do you frame the likelihood of the Fed shocking and not raising rates or adjusting their language versus what seems to be the almost certitude, the, the managed message that we're seeing now? Um, well, very near term, I think the Fed is is pretty much locked in okay. to, to, to raising rates. They're not going to suddenly but take change. Us, take yeah. us out the next year when Walmart's yeah. you know up another forty percent. Well, it's gonna it's gonna ultimately depend on how uh, risk assets in the U.S. are performing. I mean, if you have an extremely strong dollar and the S and P starts to go down sort of five, ten, fifteen percent, then that's going to start changing uh, the the attitude towards the Fed uh, of the Fed. I'm pretty sure. And remember, I don't think the issue for them is you know they don't have to raise rates every single quarter. That is our that is our view right now. Obviously, that's what we expect. But it doesn't mean that they couldn't you know, start missing in, yeah. uh, uh, meetings in order to be able to raise rates further. But so Dom, I think the issue for them is the path. Let's be clear about the U.S. dollar and who's complaining about it. The Federal Reserve's not really complaining about the strength of the U.S. dollar. This administration is complaining about the strength of the U.S. dollar. And many analysts now on Wall Street and beyond starting to speculate as to whether we could get some direct intervention from the Treasury. Do you see that happening, Dom? And, and what kind of chances, odds, do you sort of apply to that happening? I mean, I'd be shocked if they uh, they uh, intervene. I mean, they I mean, they they uh, you know historically, obviously, it would be you know unprecedented, pretty much in the, in the current circumstances for them to have any kind of uh, of intervention like that. Um, so I think things would have to deteriorate a lot uh, uh, further uh, f- f- uh, to, to to see that. So, I mean, uh, and remember, the strength of, of the of the dollar is it's not it's not absurdly strong uh, versus the euro. It's not absurdly strong versus the yen. 
I mean, the, the strength that people are sort of uh, are raising is obviously the emerging market complex. An emerging market complex is kind of, if you like, perhaps feeling the brunt of the normalization of interest rates as well in the US. Yeah. So it's a bit more of that. So I think the things that can happen uh, to help stabilize the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the emerging markets that wouldn't necessarily involve uh, you know, FX intervention type things. Don Comston of Deutsche Bank, the Securities Managing Director and Global Head of Rates Research. I'm pleased to say on Global Fixed Income, we're joined by Greg Parsons, Semper Capital Chief Executive Officer, getting AUM up to $3 billion and in growth. Um, great to see you, Greg. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Appreciate the chance. Where do you want to begin with fixed income at the moment? Because when everyone else internationally seems to be afraid of what's happening with the macro backdrop here in the United States, we're looking rock solid. Yeah, look, I mean, I think I think you nailed it, right? Uh, you know, the big thing, two things we think about, right? We are what we believe to be in a continued rising rate environment. So obviously within fixed income, that makes you think about where you want to be on the curve. But you've got a growing setup of continued strength in the U.S. and how and when that decouples, can that decouple from the kind of the rest of the markets? Well, let's talk about decoupling because high yield here in the United States seems to have decoupled from what's happening worldwide, whether you're looking at high yield in EM, high yield in, say, Europe, can that continue and can we continue to get this outperformance in the junkiest of junk in triple C's? Look, you know, our perspective is, and you know, we are a bottoms up kind of quantitative shop, right? From a data perspective, the data suggests that, you know, there's continued strength across, you know, U.S. credit, right? Whether it's asset backed, mortgage backed within, you know, targeted portions of the high yield market. And as long as, uh, the, you know, the data continues to show signs of strength, we believe that uh, you can you can offset you know the impact of rising rates with some continued strong performance. So the shorter duration explains why high yield say has outperformed investment grade in the United States this year. Yeah, I mean without a doubt. I mean look, duration is the 800 pound gorilla in the room within within the entire fixed income market. So finding ways to be short on the curve and or find opportunities where the credit component yeah. um, can outdrive the the duration aspect. Greg, we're thrilled you're here. I've got two questions. One of them is off topic, but let's start with the one on topic. Abby Johnson at Fidelity has thrown in the towel on fees and fixed income. Active management fixed income has got to respond to that. Basically, folks, she's going to give out bond index funds for next to nothing. What does it say about fixed income in this low rate environment and the ability for the industry to keep going? Look, I, you know, we can, you know, as a as a smaller boutique shop, right? Obviously, um, very strong belief in the power of active management, right? You've got to find, you know, act on the active management side, managers have got to find and prove the ability to drive, drive some element of value through bond selection, sector rotation, subsector rotation. Um, so, right. I'm going to ask you a question now in the time that we've got, which is maybe the most important question of the day. You are living and breathing the only one I know who took the path of Robert Mueller. You went to Princeton and you served as a captain in the Marines. It's the, the, the people, you know, Garrett Graff's book on Mueller and the FBI is one of my books of the summer. When you see everything, and I don't need a political angle here, but when you see everything about Mueller, what is the casting character he has out of New, out of uh, New Jersey and the Marines that, that he will use day to day? How do you respond to the uproar that you see over your compatriot? Look, uh, you know, I think um, 
you know, I, I you know can't speak for the man, but you know there was a calling to serve. Uh, the intrinsic values of the Marine Corps embeds and everyone that serves, uh, I think, are. What is that key value in the heat, the crucible that he's in right now? The key value relative where he's now is kind of in, you know integrity and a focus on mission, right? He is a very a focus on focus mission, on mission, which dovetails with the FBI perfectly. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, look, there is a very clear. Uh, impartial, what is, what needs to be done, what is the absolute mission, and in his particular case, you know, get to the truth um, in an impartial, unbiased way. When they train that in the Marines, how do they train focus on mission? Oh, for, from day one, accomplishment of mission, then welfare of Marines, right? Those are, uh, and they do that consciously, right? You know, as I think back to my, you know, officer training, you know, screening, et cetera, from day one, Accomplishment of mission is right. is the is the standing guideline by which you're me, you're measured across every every dimension of everything you do. John, should we bring it back on topic? Can, can we get back to fixing? Can I <laughs> can I focus on mission? Or are we going to get back on mission? Are we going to clip coupons or are we going to get total return? Go on, Greg. Well, you know, I think there's portions of the fixed income market. For example, you know, Semper focuses on uh, primary focus on the real estate portion of the asset back market. I think there's the ability to do both. Yeah. Right. You can find strategies in market on a long only, you know, daily liquid perspective where there's yields in the four and a half to five percent range, and you know, duration of you know one to two, right, relative to something like the Barclays Ag, which is running, let's call it yield three and a quarter, the duration of six, maybe seven. Uh, there are opportunities and pockets within the fixed income landscape to drive. Um, through clipping of coupon and active management, circling back to your earlier comment, uh, drive a total return. Greg, I don't know how you did um, to get by with us this morning, but you did fantastic in my mind. Um, thank you for coming by to Crazy Town. In every building, there is a treasured room. At the White House, someone suggests it's the green room. There are treasured rooms, perhaps the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican. At 82 Devonshire, long ago and far away in Boston, there was a treasured room. And it is a chart room. And across all of global Wall Street worldwide, it was legendary. We're going to rip up the script with Yuri and Timmer. Forget about EM. Forget about international economics. And talk about what he invented. For Mr. Timmer invented, without question, the most famous technical analyst room moment place in the history of Wall Street. Ned Johnson interviewed you. Were your knees shaking and quaking? It would never happen with Miss, Miss Johnson, Abigail. But with Ned Johnson, what was it like to sit there and talk charts? Well, good morning, Tom. Uh, thanks for having me. By the way, I did not invent the chart room. Uh, that was Mr. Johnson's father, who was called Mr. Of course, Johnson. And back, he was Mr. Johnson. He was Mr. Johnson. And that was, you know, back then in the day, in the 60s and 70s, that was like the command center because that was pre-electronic charts. So um, the, the investment uh, professionals at Fidelity would sit in a room and mm -hmm. pour over charts and figure out, you know, where to go next. But yeah, so when I interviewed uh, at Fidelity 23 years ago in 1995, um, I interviewed like probably 20 different people. Oh, but, yeah. but missed. But Ned was the last person, and he had veto because when you go into the chart room, as I was doing, uh, he needs yeah. to personally approve everyone. So, but he was very congenial, uh, very friendly. It was yeah. actually not like a high pressure type thing, yeah. and. Um, we just talked markets the whole time. You did not make Peter Lynch smart, but you certainly made him smarter. What did Mr. Lynch take away from technical analysis? Well, 
Peter had a genius uh, when, uh, I mean, in many ways, of course, uh, they're, they're legendary, but when he was doing media interviews, he would always throw out a lot of statistics. And, uh, and I learned from him, because now I do a lot of media, that if you, if you have enough facts handy... Um, you, can, you can baffle anyone. <laughs> basically, basically. So when, when Peter uh, retired uh, from the scene, he would still do a lot of media. And uh, usually I would w work with him a few days right. in advance and just kind of run all the stats yeah. by him. And then he would pick up what, whatever he thought was useful um, in, in his interviews. To get theoretical, there was point and figure charts, which were very different uh, in the 19th century. And then we found bar charts, and then all of us read John Maggie in the 1940s, cover to cover. It was the Bible. Does that stuff still work now? Does trend work now in this time of electronic speed? Yes, it does. Um, you know, um, so I grew up basically bar charting, uh, always on a log scale, of course. If the, Thank if you. the history is Pim long, Fox uses a log scale. If the history is long <clears throat> enough, um, and you're measuring growth of any kind, then you should use a semi-log scale. Um, and so in our chart room, basically most of yeah. the charts are bar charts on a log scale. And so they, they still work. I mean, maybe they get noisier if too many people are crowding at above resistance or below support. Maybe yeah. you get false moves. Um, but ultimately, the, the you know, market behavior is a subset right. of human behavior. And so studying historical market behavior and cycles, um, I think, is a timeless practice. I, I've been uh, helpful with the CFA Institute. I think my dues are due now that I think about it. I better pay those. But um, I've been on some of their boards in that. And I've always told the good people in Charlottesville, there should be more technical analysis within the CFA curricula. Do the young Turks, the best and brightest that Ms. Johnson is hiring, do they want to use the fabled chart room, or is that just like, you know, as old news as the Sistine Chapel? Uh, well, the the chart room in its physical form, obviously, um, is less used today than sure. it was 10 and or folks, 20 years let me, ago. And folks, let me say this, folks. When you went into the old chart room, it was magical. The lights were dimmed, and you, they were right in your face, and it was visceral. Yeah. It was like a Navy thing. Yeah, and, and our chart rooms, uh, and we've had several iterations, uh, were like museum quality, like Mr. Johnson would insist on, oh, yeah. on the right lights. And the right uh, pins. And, the, you know, and, and some of these charts are yeah. 30 feet long, and they're floor to ceiling. And uh, one of them uh, basically scans the entire history of the Dow, the NASDAQ, right. and the S&P. And you can't really call that up on your screen. You can call up a snippet of be history. Be careful now. This is Bloomberg. Come on. Yeah. We can do log Dow back yeah. to 1905, yeah. I think. But but if, if you want to go on, <clears> a, kidding, if you go on right. a daily chart and, yeah. and we're looking at a market bottom, let's say, for instance, right. and you want to see what did this look like, you know, Ned would go and he would just draw his finger across the the 30 feet chart and say, you know what, this looks like 1974, or I'm just giving an example, yeah. uh, or topping patterns. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. that's something you can't look up with an algorithm or, or on a screen. The life changed for everybody with a guy at Yale named Ibbotson. And Ibbotson came out with what you've just described, a, a chart that shows percentage change where slope matters and such. If I Griff, I use this on television, folks, I'll put the chart out later for Bloomberg Radio across Twitter. If I take a Dow Ibbotson chart, long-term chart, and I take trend, we're not stupid overvalued now like March of 2000. How overvalued are we on the Ibbotson trend? 
so when I, so I, I do the same thing. I have all the Ibbotson data back to 1926. It's mm-hmm. a great data set. Yeah. And what I've done is uh, I've actually spliced some older data, which was not the Dow or the S&P, but another index. And you can go all the way back to 1871. Yeah. Uh, Bob Schiller has that data series yeah. as well. Yeah. Bob and, Schiller was teaching at Yale yeah. at, at that time. And when you run a linear regression through that kind of log scale or, or through this through mm-hmm. that that line, uh, you can perfectly see all the secular bull and bear markets. It's really a beautiful thing. And um, and when you do a, a, um, a deviation from trend analysis, you can yep. see that every secular bull market begins at about 50 percentage points below trend, and every secular yeah. bull market ends at 100% or so above trend. And in 09, at that low, we were 50% below. And today we are basically at the trend. So from a purely a total return perspective, um, we are not overvalued. We're actually on trend. Valuation as a price to earnings is, of course, a different story. And yeah. the Ibbotson data doesn't, doesn't measure that. It just measures returns. When we look at all this, and there's like eight ways to go here, Yuri and Timmer, but I'll go to Walmart today, an extraordinary uh, earnings, the stock up for a blue chip battleship up huge. Is it, is, it, is it as good as it gets? I'm not saying the gloom of go to cash, but you and I have to have respect for a boom economy and what could come after. How do you manage that for investment? Yeah, so what what I learned a long time ago was to start combining the technicals and the fundamentals. Thank um, you. Ed um, Hyman, good morning. And and, and <laughs> to me that's really the, the 100% agree. The, the, John really, Murphy agrees. I mean, you can look at it at a chart and and say well the trend is up and a portfolio manager will say yeah well duh, you know, I can see that. Yeah. But if you can speak the language, the fundamental language and relate it to maybe earnings or valuation or trends in monetary policy, etc. Then I think you have the full skill set, and and also add in quantitative. You know, if you look at a technical indicator, let's back test it. Let's see if it actually works. And a lot of indicators. You can do that on the Bloomberg. A, a lot Continue. of indic- a lot of indicators in isolation, they have a batting average of about a coin toss, and and so you need to add in contextual elements mm-hmm. that that paint the the narrative of what's going on, and then your odds go maybe to sixty forty or maybe seventy thirty if you're really lucky. Right. But the, the current you know backdrop is that the economy is booming. Right. Inflation is starting to run hot. We're, we're approaching the late cycle. We're and the Red Sox are playing 7-Eleven baseball. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> so we're approaching late cycle, but we're not there. Um, so things are good. And the, the pressures that the markets are feeling from the Fed raising rates now seven times, about to go eight times, and maybe 10 or 11 times when it's all said and done, the pressures are not being felt in the U.S. market right now because earnings are booming, but they are felt, as we have seen all week long, in yeah. emerging markets, where, which are well, around 20% from their highs. This has been wonderful. Yuri and Timmer, thank you so much with Fidelity, uh, obviously uh, working on global macro, but far more there, a window back to a, a truly important past for all of global Wall Street. Well, still with us is Elsa Lignos of RBC Capital Markets. Elsa, I feel like over the last couple of months, the summer months, the probabilities of a no deal, of a crashing out, of a good deal, of a, of a second referendum have all increased. So that means that, you know, the uncertainty has increased. What does it mean for your, your pound call? So it's really difficult having a long-term 
call on sterling at the moment. And it's very difficult for a lot of investors positioning um, for the long term as well. You know, we've seen people get much more tactical in the way they trade sterling and others actually say it's untradeable. I don't even want to touch it. Um, so when it comes to the long term forecast for sterling, I think you've got to be cognizant that there are some very different scenarios. It's almost like a binary view. Okay. When do you think that we'll get more of an idea of what the view will be? Is it December? Is it February? Or can it actually come September, October? You know what? Even that's a very fluid concept. If you look at bookies markets at the moment, it's actually very interesting that the expectation for when Brexit is actually going to happen is not necessarily March 2019. Um, there's actually a lot of people betting that it gets delayed by a few months or even by a year or even some people thinking it doesn't happen at all. So there's clearly a lot of uncertainty both around outcome but also around timing. Well, then that is your call on sterling. What is it? So I think it's easier to focus on the short term, really, if you want to have any kind okay, of um, certainty or, you know, it, you know, if you're trying to trade it rather than picking out a number out of the air for a point forecast. I think at the moment, um, euro sterling looks fairly interesting. It's been in this rising uptrend, um, but it's actually one of our trades to watch. You know, we're getting to a stage where there's actually quite a lot of short term bad news priced in, um, a lot of pessimism around the mm -hmm. potential outcome for negotiations. And there could be some downside there if you see a break of this rising uptrend. That needs deep market. Are the foreign exchange markets behaving with enough depth in August to make these trades effective, or do you just have to stand aside until the autumn months? It's really interesting, your question, actually, because August traditionally is thought of as a very low uh, volume month. Um, and that's certainly true sometimes, but not always, um, particularly when you see some big events happening. You can actually see a lot more volume going through the market. Um, I do think for investors that got ahead of September and actually started positioning um, with nine month or one year vol trades, um, they were actually right to do so because we've already seen vol move up quite significantly. A month ago, still fairly cheap, not the case anymore. Um, what, I mean, if you look at your different calls, Alza, so you have an interesting call on euro. We just went through pound and, uh, you know, the difficulty in it. Your yen call is 112. How do we get there? So yen actually 125. 125. Um, and... Really, it's a quite a long-term story. Um, you know, we mentioned it earlier, based around what the Fed is going to do and how uh, Fed rate increases is actually going to drive the cost of hedging for Japanese investors. I think the, the Japanese side is interesting as well. You know, we've just passed the fifth birthday of Abenomics. It's really done nothing um, for the Japanese yen. And it's not very likely to lead to some fantastic growth scenario for Japan. So the Bank of Japan is on hold. It's really what banks in the rest of the world are doing that makes oh, the difference. But also, I if I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had a big call on big figure moves in yen. Do you stand by that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you look at uh, dollar yen over the long term, it's much more likely to be driven by uh, capital flows of domestic investors than the swings on risk on risk off. You know, we've seen dollar yen actually somewhat anesthetized to the short term risk appetite. The correlation is still high, but the elasticity is a lot lower than it was. So I think you've got to be much more focused in the long term on those capital flows rather than oh. these swings in risk sentiment. Absolutely brilliant. Elsa Lingos, thank you so much with RBC Capital. Capital markets will walk through the foreign exchange space and also, of course, on EM. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.